some, actually somebody else labeled Nietzsche's political ideas radical or aristocratic radicalism, and Nietzsche said that was a really mm-hmm. good. Uh, that was a really good label for them. Our moral intuitions, our moral uh, psychology evolved in the context of massive intergroup competition and evolved to wage war. That's what it's for. Um, and we're very good at demonizing the outgroup and, and construing all of ourselves as, as perfect angels and ignoring evidence uh, that, that might hurt our in-group and, and seeking out evidence to hurt the outgroup. Right? We're very good at doing that. Uh, but in the context of trying to solve problems, you know, solve problems around existential threats, for example, right? Uh, whether it's you know nuclear war, or, you know, the potential threat of AI, which I had no clue what to think about, but uh, and and stuff like that, right? I mean, all of that's just totally toxic. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Brett Anderson the author of the amazing substack, Imitations of the New Worldview, where he discusses both the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche and many others, as well as evolutionary psychology and the attempt to reconcile those two with a new moral philosophy. I particularly appreciate his series, The Reevaluation of All Values, of course, borrowing that phrase from Nietzsche. We discuss, of course, Nietzsche himself, his idea of slave morality versus master morality, this in the context of differences in genetics, in innovations in cognitive science and in biology in general, elite versus common mentalities. Of course, I delve into a very common question as of late that I've been asking, uh, Democrat versus Republican exceptionalism, and go deeper into some theories on complexity and of meaning. This was a discussion that really ranged the full gamut of From the New World topics, and I'm really happy it did. As always, if you like the show, the number one thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know, either in person or online. The odds are, if you know someone who has similar interests, who has similar hobbies, then not only are you helping us grow the show, but you're also giving this person something interesting and hopefully informative to listen to. Without further ado, here's Brett Anderson. You can also suggest future guests, which I'd be really happy to hear from you about. Is the story of Jordan Peterson a tragedy or a comedy? It is a tragedy, uh, in my humble opinion. So let me preface this by saying that I really, uh, I really have nothing but love for Jordan and. You know, Jordan's class lectures, like many, like as for many young men at the time, really uh, helped me out a lot in my early 20s uh, to put myself back together after some uh, some pretty terrible things that happened in my early 20s. And so I, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And uh, his first book, Maps of Meaning, in my opinion, is brilliant. I think it's a great book. He put a lot of work and effort into it. Uh, so I still say it's a tragedy and why. Mostly because, uh, mostly because his Twitter is so cringe. Uh, I think that the way that he the way that he engages with with Twitter alienates many people who would otherwise be on his side. Other alienates many reasonable and rational people who would otherwise be an ally of his, uh, including me. Right? I mean, it alienates me, and I, I I'm somebody who really, by all measures, ought to be, uh, you know, a, a Jordan Peterson fan, really. 
but and I am in some ways, right? I, I like his podcast. I like uh, especially Maps of Meaning and his lectures. But his Twitter is so bad, in my opinion, uh, that it kind of it, it doesn't negate it, but uh, it it it's counterproductive to even his own goals. And so I won't go through a list of tweets. I think most people are aware of, like the you know the recent one where he tweet he retweeted the Chinese BDSM fetish porn. Um, this. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the this is what happens when you I mean, because I saw that and, you know, the, you have to be I mean, I, I just thought skepticism towards that was the obvious stance. But I think Jordan is so enthralled by the culture war, right, that he just he views everything through that lens and he becomes a little gullible about that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's others, right. you know. Yeah. So and, and I think something that happens is people become more and more kind of enthralled by the abstractions. Right. They really like the abstractions. They don't like asking the question of like, what is the practical effect of all of this? Right. Everything is about aesthetics, about, you know, how it makes right. people feel, how, how it like riles people up. And it's like, you know, does the is like the, and this isn't to say, you know, like the entire issue of, you know, quote unquote, wokeness or the kind of loss of tradition, the loss of religion that Peterson talks about. This isn't to trivialize the issue itself, but it's to right. point out that, you know a lot of the things that he kind of cherry picks and that a lot of people in those circles kind of cherry pick is uh, not really all that productive for their own ends. I, I totally agree. You know, like the, the tweet about the sports illustrated swimsuit model, right? Like there's an important point to be made there about, you know, what, what's happening, you know, what is the, what is this phenomenon where we're putting overweight people as, as supermodels, right? That like, that's, that's an important discussion to have. But who, what exactly is the benefit of the kind of tweet that he – I mean, he's not going to convince anybody, right? So nobody who disagrees is, is suddenly going to look at that tweet where Jordan implies that she's fat and ugly. You know, he says, not beautiful, and then he calls it authoritarian compassion. So that's not going to convince anybody who doesn't agree with you, right? All, all it does is kind of signal to people who already agree uh, to get them to rally to your side. But the thing is that Twitter has this it, – it's like a black hole, right? I mean, it's – you know, it, it – uh, uh, it incentivizes those kinds of tweets because that's what gets engagement. That's what gets likes. That's what gets retweets. And so, you know, Jordan is as human as anybody else and he tweets all the time. So I'm sure he, you know, our, our, our little reward centers uh, light up when we get some likes and retweets. Right. And so I think it just, it, it, it necessarily, the more time you spend on Twitter, uh, I think the more you, you get sucked into that kind of discourse. Right. Maybe the moral of the story here is that sort of these kind of like really strong moral changes or not necessarily changes, right? They can draw on a kind of past tradition, but that these kind of differences, you should sort of, you should sort of have a kind of private version and a public version where the private version, you are really kind of taking things to their logical conclusion, really thinking about, you know, what's, what ends you're trying to accomplish but the public version you're just kind of you know like it, it's kind of like that meme where i think it's like the breaking bad guys it's like what what are you going on about right like what are you what are you even talking about yeah yeah um i, I think like this is somewhat related to something in nietzsche that i also think about this is of course related to your work uh writing on nietzsche and writing about uh him and other philosophers in the context of kind of modern uh, modern science, modern evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. But there, there's this idea that the way that kind of moral and cultural change happens is like moral inversion, right? Mm. 
Yeah, there's like a, a dialectic, right? And, uh, you know, for Nietzsche, this dialectic was between master morality and slave morality, uh, primarily, right? And so after the advent of agriculture, we had the, we had the, the rise of these, uh, tyrannical, hierarchical societies with God, you know, with, with like, uh, God emperors who had absolute authority. And even, even when it wasn't that extreme, right, there was a, always a, an aristocracy and a nobility who had one set of rules for them and another set of rules for everybody else. And then in the axial age, you know, 2,500 years ago, uh, we had a, a reaction to that. And that reaction was, it was a, a, these religious revolutions across the ancient world uh, where the nature of God and the gods changed from being reflections of the, so like the Greek gods are not moralistic really, right? They're, they're like reflections of the, the Greek nobility of, of how they actually, you know, Zeus was, uh, Zeus was like a badass who defeated the Titans, but he's also a liar and a rapist and all this stuff, right? Um, he's not a moral exemplar, at least in the way we would think about it. And then slave morality came along and, and it, it inverted all of the, and if you look at Christianity compared to like Roman morality, I mean, it really does invert all of the values that are inherent to the, the values of the Roman aristocracy. So yes, there is that kind of inversion. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this is kind of how the kind of progressive um, framing of the kind of historical debate and not necessarily false, right? Like the kind of civil rights narrative is kind of like you had a very solid kind of like, and to the degree that it's specifically about race as opposed to kind of class, you know, how, how are people treating yeah. kind of like poor whites? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not completely accurate, but the idea that there was a kind of distinction between kind of upper class whites and blacks was definitely you know, it, it was by law. And yes. you had this kind of inversion where simultaneously you had, you had a kind of elite ruling class that was sort of disgusted by this, right? By, disgusted by their actions. But you had, you had it so that the reaction by the public to that kind of disgust was, was ultimately stronger than the kind of disgust itself, right? Well, can you, can you, sorry, can you repeat that last part? Uh, what, what kind of disgust was stronger? Right, right. So, so the kind of example is like, um, the example is kind of like you had the lunch counter sit-ins. There were, there were people who were kind of appalled by, you know, the idea that black people and white people would eat in the same place. They, you know, sent in um, kind of uh, cops who were willing to kind of use uh, excessive force, use water cannons, so on, Right. And more people were kind of, uh, more people were disgusted or more people reacted at least. I'm not sure if it was discussed exactly, but more people reacted to the, um, to the kind of use of force to enforce kind of Jim Crow laws than to re, than reacted to the kind of, the kind of motivation behind enforcing those laws. Yes. Right? Yes. Like the, ultimately the, the kind of moral, um, compulsion by the latter or sorry, by the former was stronger than the latter. Yes. And so I, I think that like the, this, this idea of like inversion, this idea of like that, that people can kind of choose the thing to react to. Right. And, and a lot of the times when just like throughout, throughout kind of uh, civilizational history, right. When people have reacted and had these great moral changes in this way, it's been, it's been that kind of choice. Right. And, and I think like Nietzsche kind of, I'm not sure if this is exactly 
uh, Nietzsche's view of slave morality. But I, I think it's, well, like, just let me know, you know, how similar is this? This was kind of my reading of how slave morality won, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, we're at a weird point, right, in history, I think, where uh, we're at the, like, logical culmination of slave morality. Uh, because right. because we ha- we are at a point where everybody basically has in the Western world equal rights. Uh, we are the most egalitarian civilization, at least you know, like ever since agriculture, anyways. Uh, but probably you know, really before that. And and we're, so we have this this strong egalitarian ethos. But we're right on the cusp of of uh, the of slave morality coming to uh, like coming to its its conclusion because everybody is legally and morally equal and that kind of uh, moral equality is extremely enforced. The problem is, um, I think, you know, is that at the bottom of slave morality for Nietzsche, uh, and I agree with him, right? At the bottom of it was always a kind of what what, what he calls ressentiment, right? This brooding resentment, right? This poisonous resentment that's always there. Uh, And when it's in the service of... Look, if you have real slave, like real slavery, um, like that kind of ressentiment is, you know, it seems very justified to us. But for Nietzsche, that kind of ressentiment is it also characterizes people who are just losers, basically. Right. <laughs> so um, Elliot Roger, uh, I think we, you know, most of us remember Elliot Roger. He was the San Bernardino shooter or Santa Barbara uh, school shooter. He wrote a, a manifesto. Uh, and, and it's such an interesting manifesto. I'm going to write about it at some point um, because he's not an idiot. Right. So he's like a, a relatively smart guy and he's and he's very self-aware uh, and very honest. And he's a it's a full vindication of Nietzschean psychology because he just I mean, he just lays out you know, the whole logic of Rasantamon, this impotent drive for vengeance. Right. And. Uh, because he's he's been a loser his whole life. He's not good at anything. He's not attractive, you know, and all this. And um, at the bottom of that is like he wants to he he wants revenge, right? He wants revenge. He doesn't even know what against, right? But against life, against against God, whatever. Uh, and he takes it out on innocent people. But for Nietzsche, that that sentiment is always there at the bottom of slave morality, right? Even even you know. It, it, there are a lot of things about about the the ethos of slave morality that may inspire us morally, right? Like the whole Martin Luther King Jr. civil rights stuff, like all that is slave morality. And and I have no, you know, I don't think there's an issue with that kind of. But what Nietzsche says is like, look, that kernel of Rosantamon is always there. And and what we're seeing now, I think, is you know, uh, Douglas Murray wrote this book, The War on the West, and we have this basically this religion within the universities that is hyper egalitarian. Uh, and and extremely vicious in its uh, uh, in its drive to excommunicate anybody who disagrees at all, uh, and it's and it's directed towards anybody with what they call privilege. Whatever. All of this, you know, all of this Nietzsche believed was kind of the logical conclusion of slave morality, uh, if that makes sense. Right. I think that, uh, or I, there's kind of two paths here. Uh, one of them that I think I'm going to save for later, where I think I disagree with you, is yeah. the idea that the world has become uh, the most egalitarian that it has been. I think that might be true in terms of kind of uh, marketing, in terms of like publicly stated beliefs, but is is not necessarily true in kind of 
both revealed preferences and also just the kind of way we live our lives with technology and with um, all of the ways, all of the additional capabilities that people have kind of developed over the years. Right. Okay. But uh, the other question I really want to go to is how this kind of ties into the two worlds mythology, right? That you kind of talk and that you talk about and that yeah. comes from uh, Nietzsche when he's describing slave morality. So, so first of all, can you just give a summary of that for, for the audience? Yeah. So if you are a master, Let's say if you are a part of the aristocracy, you're a slave owner, you are uh, somebody who is um, extremely powerful within your society. You don't need really you don't need any like metaphysical justification for your moral preferences. You can just act them out because you're powerful. Right. You can you can basically do what you want. Now you have to you know, you have to do what you want in the context of cooperating with the rest of the aristocracy. But the aristocracy itself doesn't really need to justify its morality. Right. Its moral preferences. Uh, and they don't, right? And and we see uh, in the religions that characterize these kinds of aristocracies, right? The gods are not moralistic gods. The gods are just reflections of of the of the aristocracy's own, basically their high opinion of themselves. Uh, and they may they may justify their power by saying that they are descended from the gods or whatever. But we don't see uh, we don't. And, and as John Verveke has argued in his Meaning Crisis series before the Axial Age, which uh, characterized these very hierarchical societies that, that came about after the advent of agriculture, um, there was no two worlds mythology. They, they really saw divinity as being continuous with the rest of the world, right? And so for them, an emperor really could be a god, right? It, it, was, uh, it wasn't really even like a metaphor for them, right? Like divinity in the, in, the, in the world were continuous with each other. There was no real separation between the two. But let's just say that you're not powerful. Uh, you are not a master. You are a, a slave or a common person or an oppressed person, and you want to enact your moral preferences. Well, you don't have the power to necessarily. Uh, and so the idea here is that what what happened was they projected their own preferences onto a, an all-powerful, all-seeing, all, you know, omniscient, moralizing God. Right? I. It's not that I want equality. It's that God wants equality, right? Right. Uh, you know, and so, um, and so this was a, a strategy, basically. And that required, so what you, what you require there is um, this metaphysical worldview where you have, you know, the, the way it was done anyways, I'm not sure if it was necessarily, if it was necessary to do it this way, but at least in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea was that what goes on in the, in the sensual world is... What's the best way to put this? Um, is somewhat secondary to what to to the true world, the real world, heaven, the supernatural world, which is above and and over the 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 sensual world, and which is more important than the sensual world. And that actually, what we're working for uh, is you know the suffering and all all that stuff that's inherent to this life is actually an atonement and just and it's justified by the fact that there's another world, a better world that is awaiting us, and all of this. Uh, and so that, you know, partly what that was, was a cultural technology to, and this is basically what Nietzsche argued in the genealogy. It's a cultural technology to assuage the resentment of the lower classes, right? Because it allows them at least on some level to believe, hey, you know, I'm not going to be a king or emperor in this life, but we're all equal before the eyes of God. And then, you know, in the afterlife, maybe there will be some comeuppance. Uh, and so, Slave morality was really predicated on this this two worlds mythology. Um, 
and but the problem is that the two worlds mythology at this point uh, is no longer viable to us. Where you know the scientific revolution has uh, has undermined many of the assumptions of the two worlds mythology, like that we were created by you know a transcendent god and all this because of evolutionary theory. Uh, so we're at a point where you know I think the Enlightenment was partly. Uh, and, and the, the rational moral philosophies of the Enlightenment were in part an attempt to to retain the moral intuitions that had been uh, instilled in us through Christianity without the two worlds mythology. All of them, I think, kind of fail. But yeah, that, that's basically the summary. Right. Um, the big question is, though, like even with our kind of scientific discoveries, um, even before those kind of things were discovered, the the underlying processes were still there, right? For example, evolution was still there. You know, there was still, for example, sexual dimorphism. There was still a lot of biological, um, just kind of individual variants, right? Like those those facts were still true, even if they weren't as kind of rigorously proven yet. Yeah. But nonetheless, even if you know you could have this kind of informal you know, all these differences that you could see in everyday life, even despite all of those, you still had um, slave morality come and, you know, ultimately win, right? Ultimately win the ideological battle. Yeah. So isn't there some reason to think that slave morality can persist, even if it's kind of factual claims have been debunked? Uh, yes. Um, and I think that it, it will inevitably, well, I mean, you know, I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche basically said it would take 200 years for us to be rid of, of slave morality. Um, I mean, that was kind of his... This was around 200 years ago, right? <laughs> well, about 120 years ago. We're kind of in the middle of it. Okay. Right? Um, right. So, you know, I mean, his argument was that, you know, God is dead, but the, his shadows will, will remain for 200 years and we have to vanquish his shadow too. Um, yes. I mean... It, 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 so Jonathan Haidt, um, his most famous paper was his 2001 paper, the what the intuitive dog and its rational tail, right? And uh, he argued, and this was kind of a revolution in moral psychology at the time. Uh, look, the the moral reasoning we do does not drive our moral judgment, right? The moral judgment comes first; it comes emotionally, it comes intuitively, and then the reasoning comes along afterwards to justify the intuitions, and so. We have these intuitions, which are very peculiar historically, uh, about things like moral equality, everybody is equal, every, you know, all, the, all this stuff. And uh, at least compared to the pre-axial age religions and even really most of the axial age civilizations, we are, our moral intuitions are extremely kind of egalitarian, compassion-based. They're all based on around like harm and care and fairness, fairness in terms of equality. Um, and this was inculcated, Nietzsche argues, but not just Nietzsche, more recently, Joseph Henrik argued in, in The Weirdest People in the World. Uh, this was really a result of the ascendancy of Christianity in the Western world. And you can see, of course, uh, how the Christian narrative, which was radical, you know, a, an extremely radical narrative in the in the Roman world in which, the, in which it emerged, because for the Romans, the gods were powerful entities who inflicted suffering on their enemies. And for the Christians, right, we have a god who is a victim, right, a god upon whom suffering is inflicted. So we have this whole victim uh, kind of narrative within Christianity. And uh, anyways, uh, there's a good book. Larry Seedentop wrote a really nice book showing how our modern liberal uh, liberal philosophies and institutions emerged out of Christianity. But 
I probably lost my lost my point, whatever point I was trying to make. What was I talking about? Right. You, you were you were talking about how slave morality. Um, the the question was about whether slave morality could. Um, oh, persist. Whether slave morality could persist despite its kind of factual claims being debunked. And right. you're talking about kind of the trajectory from Christianity and into the kind of modern uh, kind of slave morality institutions, the, the kind right. of like uh, ge- genealogy between them. Yeah, yeah, right. So if we take, you know, Jonathan Haidt's theory about morality seriously, which, by the way, was almost word for word. Uh, Nietzsche basically had the same theory, which he talked about in Daybreak. It's almost, you know, it's almost uncanny how similar they are. But we take that that idea seriously. What it means is that our moral intuitions are what really matters. The reasoning that comes along with them is just there to justify them. But the problem is that our reasons actually do, they do matter, right? Because unless the reasons are sound, unless they make sense to us, unless they're viable to us, it causes some internal conflict, right? It causes, and it, and it, and it also makes the whole moral system less stable. Uh, the reason behind our, our morality, the reason, the, the, you know, the rationalization we use to justify Christian morality was the Christian metaphysics, right? The idea of an equality of souls were equal before God and so on. Uh, when that's gone, right, it destabilizes the whole thing. So it will remain, it can remain, and it will remain for, for a, a long time, who knows, but it does destabilize uh, the morality, or at least that would be Nietzsche's argument. And, you know, it, and it's such a big deal, you know, I mean, this is basically what Nietzsche meant when he declared the death of God, right? For him, it's a very big deal because um, we've lost the the right to Christian morality, right? It's going to remain, but we've lost the right to it, and it's going to cause a lot of conflict. I mean, of course, I, mean, we, I think we saw this with the rise of communism, the rise of, you know, the Nazis and so on. Right. Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, it's definitely much more difficult to kind of feel the the presence of a transcendent God in a sort of, you know, post-industrial, in post-industrial society, particularly. I I think that kind of aspect of it makes sense. But there's a way in which it's sort of easier not necessarily to believe in the kind of Christian version, but to believe in some version of the slave morality, just because it's become much easier to kind of distract yourself, right? The, you know, you mentioned height. Um, there is a lot of talk about kind of filter bubbles, surrounding yourself with people online who all agree with you, right? It seems, yes. and, and in that kind of environment, I think that's, you know, the, the slave morality is still, it's still thriving, right? It's still doing great. Oh, definitely. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's still, yeah, it's, it's, you know, one of, one of the most powerful kind of online ideologies and kind of bureaucratic ideologies out there. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so the question is like, I, I kind of agree with the general Nietzschean framing that, you know, like peace, things become unbelievable, right? Things become you know, kind of so contrary to your lifestyle and to your day-to-day actions that, you know, like seriously, you know, it becomes, it becomes, un, uh, you, you can't reconcile it with, with the things that you're doing every day. But, and, and I, and I believe to some extent that that's true about most people in the world, right? You know, you just look at kind of, you, you just look at GPT-3 or like GPT-4, everything that's coming out, there's much more things in the world that are forcing us to ask, you know, are people actually equal? 
yeah. are people where where is the success coming from right yeah. like why are some people successful and with something like uh uh chat or artificial intelligence or just you know the expansion of technological capacity in general i think that the idea that inequality is born of oppression at least in kind of western countries is on its way out like mm-hmm. like intuitive to intuitively to me right like it's on its way out if you're using these technologies if you're if you're you know answering the questions they force you to ask sure but at the same time like the, I, I don't see I, I don't observe that around me right especially in kind of quote unquote elite circles yes so so like how would you square that or like how would Nietzsche square that I, I, either is good Oh, I mean, the the in the elite circles, right? I mean, there's I, I call it a religion, right? It's the religion of equality. Uh, and if you posit, I mean, uh, uh, even just talking about things that are that are just blatantly obvious scientific facts, right? I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyways, uh, which is that IQ predicts long term outcomes and it's highly heritable, right? Even that is still like anathema among a, a, a large group of what you might call elites. Uh, so they are, they are totally head in the sand, right? We're maintaining our egalitarian ethos or whatever, whatever the facts may be, right? And we are going to persecute anybody who, who would dare to oppose that. Um, sooner or later, right? We're, I mean, I, I think this stuff has to come to a head at some point. Uh, because at this point we have the technology. So for, I mean, obviously the biggest, the biggest one, right? The one that, uh, you see the most hostility about is race differences and in intelligence or ability or whatever, right? Uh, and, you know, it's not going to be long before we're going to have the technology to answer that question pretty much, you know, uh, with, without. Yeah, the gene wide association school. Yeah. Like people in my audience are pretty familiar with that. Yeah. Right, right. I, I think that like, I mean, the counterpoint to that is that we've had that technology for a while. I, I know. Right? I, I like, the tests are kind of very low tech, even if you can do like the kind of genetic mapping properly now yeah. nowadays. Like, um, yeah, go ahead. And also, even on the individual level, right? Even like the individual level variances, people like, especially kind of. Uh, not even kind of like left wing as in kind of like socialists, but kind of like the, the you know, college educated, you know, like the, the, the cultural left, we can say. Yeah. Right. Uh, are, are really in denial even of individual differences. Right. And, yes. and we've had, you know, like, like you said, I think we're both in agreement with, uh, with this. We've had the, the evidence for that, certainly for, you know, decades at the very least. Yes. And um, yes, so like the, the question the thing that I, that I keep kind of like bumping up against, right. When, when I think about Nietzsche, like, like Nietzsche, like reading Nietzsche kind of makes me sort of very hopeful in a strange way, right. Because of the age we're living in and because of this kind of unbelievability argument, mm-hmm. I feel like should apply to a lot of the, the things that we sh- share, right. The kind of the, the truths, the, the kind of debunking of slave morality. I think all of that is right, but I just look at the world around me and I'm like, where's the recognition, right? Where's the, where's the unbelievability? Yeah. Uh, You know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, um, I think it's coming, you know, I'm pretty sure that within the universities, for example, among the professors, really, 
there are only like the, the number of professors who are really fanatical is actually a pretty small percentage. Right. But they, they right. are so um, the, the problem is the other professors don't care enough about the actual issues that are controversial to say much about it. And that's largely because the ones who do care about those have been selected out. Right. They don't get jobs. They don't get uh, promoted and so on. Uh, so, I mean, we have a situation where really the fanatics are, are a small percentage and they rule by fear uh, and, and just by the fact that they've selected out anybody who, who might show any signs that they're going to rebel, uh, at least within the universities. So I do think like the 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 what seems to be a consensus is a little bit of an illusion. Um, and with those kinds of situations, you can see change occur pretty rapidly, right? As soon as the, as soon as the, uh, you know, the emperor, you know, as soon as we, somebody says the emperor has no clothes, you know, the, the, the situation can change pretty rapidly. I think that's what's going on, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't have any hope for the universities. I mean, um, I think that the universities are dead in the water and, you know, as far as like intellectual institutions, um, uh, totally, you know, it's not all aspects. So there's a lot of really great scientific work that's going on, but the humanities are done. And without the humanities, I don't really think there's any point of the, of the universities as they're currently structured. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the real answer, I don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, uh, it's hard to tell how, how much of a, uh, a lock, right. The, the ideology has on the culture. Wait. I think you said something there that I think might not be obvious either to the audience or to me, which is like that the universe, there's no point to the universities uh, as they're structured without the humanities. Um, can, can you just explain that to me? Right. Like, like, is there, is there no point to kind of like, you know, like the biology departments at well, like Harvard the, or whatever? The issue, the issue was that a college education at one point in time was for a very small percentage of people. Right. I mean, right. Uh, and, and the point was to get a general education, to be, to be a, a, like a general liberal education. You might get some specialized training, but you were going to take uh, a Western Civ course. You were going to learn a lot of, you know, Western philosophy, Western literature, Western art, and all this stuff. And, and this was to prepare you to be a citizen, right? To prepare you to be uh, somebody who was not naive about the world. Um, and what we've got now you know, if we want trade schools, let's have trade schools, right? There's no need for the for the giant bureaucracy of the universities and all of this. If we want to train somebody to be a chemist, you can just train them to be a chemist, right? Uh, you don't you don't need all the other stuff. Um, and the humanities courses that people are required to take, that I was required to take as an undergrad, are just nonsense. They're just crap. Uh, I was required to take um, a course. On, it was basically you know socialist propaganda, right? It was a course right. on like poverty in America. It's just socialist propaganda. Uh, we wa we literally watched a Michael Moore film in that class. Um, <laughs> you know, so I mean, the, if that's what the humanities are, we don't need all of that stuff, right? We just need trade schools where people go learn to be a chemist or go to pre med or whatever, and that would be much cheaper, much less overhead, and all of this. But the the issue at hand is really, I think. You know, we we've democratized the university so much. There was this idea that like everybody needs to go to college, but the problem is, uh, <laughs> most people won't benefit from a real liberal arts education. Right? I mean, it, it's just not the case that most people are going to benefit from that. And and but the idea was, well, everybody's the same, right? And it's unfair that some people are going to college while most people don't, and they have all these advantages. So we like we we had this idea, well, everybody's got to go to college. Now it's become a commodity. 
Um, we really, you know, if that's the way it's going to be, we should just have trade schools and, and be done with the university system. I think, and I think that's probably what's going to end up happening anyways. Right. Yeah. You already see that with kind of Bloom Academy, which is kind of like computer science trade school that does income sharing agreements. Yeah. I, I think that like marginally that's what's happening. Although like we were talking about before, who knows how long it will take to. Uh, yeah. I have unfold. no idea. Yeah. Right. Although I think we should, we shouldn't kind of just. I want to add some layers to this because I don't think a lot of young people, especially like, like this is, I'm really speaking of myself, like, I don't know, two years ago here that, that a lot of kind of computer science or math majors or science majors, you know, like, like the kind of, um, yeah, like STEM majors basically don't really understand what's been lost. Like, like they, they don't, understand you know what what you're missing out if you're not like asking yourself these questions or really not give it given the kind of like guidance to ask yourself these questions yes so, so can you like what do you what do you think of that like what if you were to kind of summarize what you're missing out right like what what would you say the major benefit of kind of like studying the humanities properly is well, it makes you less. I mean, I think there's many benefits of it. Not not only the fact that it, it will make you inevitably by reading great works uh, of literature and philosophy, it's going to make you a better writer, a better speaker, and all that. So that's one thing. But I think the main societal benefit of having people who are really who really understand the Western tradition, where we've come from, where we're going, and all this, is that it makes them less naive. It makes them less susceptible to fads, to intellectual fads, and so on. Um, and that's extremely important for the functioning of a, of a democracy. I think not, not that I'm all that optimistic about, you know, the long-term future of democracy anyways, but, um, I mean, it, it, I think it's just extremely important to have a group of people in your society who are educated in a way that they understand what your society is. Uh, and in the humanities at the moment, we're doing the opposite, right? It's just all propaganda nonsense. It's a one side, you know, we should learn about the history of slavery and all that. Yeah, all that's important. But uh, the total degradation of the great, uh, the great works of Western civilization and so on is just, you know, uh, it's the opposite of really what, what should be happening, I think. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, that's the, that's the importance of it is that it makes you uh, uh, somebody who is able to to formulate an argument, but, but also, uh, what you're, you're less easily manipulated, I think is really one of the main things. Right. Yeah. I think like for, for me, the biggest thing is like kind of like the nuance in how and why people believe things, yeah. the kind of like, you know, like the kind of way out of like the rationalist hellscape of thinking that, you know, like people either, you know, believe things because they've thought of them rationally and they've considered all of the possibilities and they've weighed it statistically. And, you know, that, that's how people come to their conclusions. Either that or it's like the, this like unknowable the thing that's unknowable other than by doing like large sampled studies. Um, uh, this unknowable thing called bias that we can only kind yeah. of observe at a, like a very large, large distance. As opposed to like a question that's been considered by thinkers and by writers and by artists and authors for really for like millennia. Right. Right. I think that like just in terms of practical use, in terms of like 
really kind of getting to the bottom of what and why someone thinks about something and just like persuading people in your ordinary life. Yeah. If you are just kind of like trying to approach that from like a purely kind of like, you know, like, you know, capital S scientific way, you're just not doing, you're just not going to get the results. It's just not going to be there. You're just not, you're just missing out. And, you know, like this isn't to, to like cast doubt, on books like Elephant in the Brain, which I think try to do this. I think those are good books too, right? But but we should not ignore, you know, like the millennia of people who've done this. <laughs> right. Well, in order to understand something, in my opinion, you have to understand its history, right? You have to understand how it emerged and developed and grew uh, over time. And other than that, you know, you really don't, you know, you, you necessarily have a superficial understanding of anything, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't understand, you know, where it came from, uh, and, and why it emerged and all this. And so in trying to um, even understand like political ideologies and so on, right, to, to see them as just manifestations of like recent um, recent political fads or phenomena and all this. I mean, it, to my mind, um, the ideology within the university, for example, has roots that go back thousands of years, right? And, um you know, in order to really to get to the bottom of it, you have to understand something about that history. And uh, so trying to make a, as you said, trying to make like a rational argument about it just doesn't do, I mean, it doesn't do anybody any good. All of that's, all of that's kind of surface level, I think. Right. Uh, speaking of fads. Yeah. This is one question that I've been uh, thinking about and asking my guests about particularly in the last few weeks is uh, Republican exceptionalism versus uh, democratic exceptionalism, right? There, there's the idea, you know, there's two ideas. One is that, you know, like, I, I think most people agree that the Democrats are much more able to kind of control state bureaucracies to wield political power effectively. And, you know, there, there could be two reasons for this. One is that the Democrats are kind of exceptionally good at wielding political power. And the other is that Republicans are sort of exceptionally bad at wielding power. (laughs) And we can dwell on the, we can dwell on the second part there because yeah, you, you talked about slave morality. I think it's in the modern day somewhat associated with kind of left-wing egalitarianism, but there is a lot of slave morality on the right. And I think it kind of shapes how it adopts fads. You know, you can think of the entire, you know, like stop the steal thing as sort of like this, the, uh, Richard Hanania has this article called like the right as a oppositional culture where they, they kind of like a lot of right wing populists willingly adopt kind of like low, like uh, this, this is sometimes used inappropriately, but I think there are cases where it is fitting where they're genuinely anti-intellectual. Yes. Right. Where there is this manifestation of slave morality on like the supposedly based right as well. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah, the, the, the question is like, so, so like the main thesis here of the kind of Republican exceptionalism point is that they are kind of just like, they are uniquely kind of unpositioned, like positioned not to wield power because of their adoption of slave morality. Yes. Uh, do, you, do you think that's, that's the case or do you think it's, uh, do you think it's something else? Well, I mean, I think we are all the inheritors of slave morality. My own moral intuitions are, are in that realm. I mean, we, we, there's no getting away. It's the water that we swim in, 
right? So yeah. really the culture war is not between slave morality and master morality. It's between two sort of competing versions of slave morality in some sense. Um, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Sure. I mean, as far as why the Democrats are so much better at occupying uh, positions of power and, and all this and their, you know, the bureaucratic uh, stuff, I mean, I don't know exactly, but my sense is, you know, because I, I was raised around a lot of Republicans and now I'm in an, you know, in a, in a world where I'm surrounded by Democrats and there is, and, and partly this is just because now I'm surrounded by academics, but there is a difference in temperament, I think, where, um, I mean, it seems to me that that the average Republican is more likely, you know, way more likely to go into something like construction or, you know, whatever, like manual trades and all this, uh, even if they have the same, let's say, IQ, right, even if they're just as smart, uh, they still choose jobs that are kind of like that. And you see, um, I think that the, the kind of people who tend to be on the left tend to be more likely to go into bureaucratic positions. Um, so maybe it's just something to do with, with personality types that tend to, you know, go to one side or the other, but it's a good question anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Nanya has this article, uh, I think like why, why is everything liberal or something like that, right? It's yeah. one of his classics where he, I mean, I he lays this out statistically and yeah, the, the, the data reflects that where all of the jobs that are kind of like much higher status than they are pay are just overwhelmingly dominated by Democrats, whether yeah. it's journalism, academia, uh, public service, right? Um, right? Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, like the data definitely reflects that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we kind of, I think, stumbled upon one of the answers for uh, for the question for the question earlier of why slave morality or like why we haven't kind of gotten past slave morality yet is that kind of like the best alternative to slave morality is just another version of slave morality, right? It, it's it's we're we're not even competing on the right axis. Um, yes, I guess the intuitive question is like you know how how do we even start competing on the right axis at all? How do we even make it a fight against you know fight between slave morality and master morality or slave morality or something you know something that gets past yeah. that at all? Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not optimistic about this. Uh, there's a, a book called what, uh, the war on American education, man, I forget the name of it. I, I should remember it cause I really like that book. Anyways, it was this professor making the case that, you know, within the universities, there was once an aristocratic ethos, right? There was the idea that, you know, some people are more fully developed as human beings and other people, right? And this was the goal of the university was to become a more fully developed human being. And it was not about equality. It was about an order of rank, right? It was about a hierarchy right. of human beings. That idea is so anathema in our culture. Uh, and it's been expunged from the universities, right? To the, to the detriment of the universities. Um, because of course, if there's no such, if there's nobody's better than anybody else, then what's the point in some sense? But um yeah, like that, like bringing that idea back, right? The aristocratic ethos, um, you know, Nietzsche called his own, uh, so actually somebody else labeled Nietzsche's political ideas, radical or aristocratic radicalism. And Nietzsche said that was a really <laughs> good, uh, that was a really good label for them. Um, so I mean, Nietzsche and, and myself, um, I kind of project, kind of project my, my stuff onto Nietzsche sometimes. I, I should try to be more careful, but so I, I don't want to bring back Bastion morality for sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, there were problems with it. it. It created resentment and all this. Okay. But we have to bring back, we have to get past this idea that everybody's the same, 
right? That everybody has the same level of ability, is born with the same level of ability and all this or the same potential. Uh, it's just, it's so obviously not true. And it's causing, and it causes a whole lot of what confusion. Uh, and so how do we bring back the aristocratic ethos? Like to especially, well, I have no hope for the universities, but that's what the universities were for in some sense was, was for what cultivating uh, aristocratic sensibilities in some sense, right? To be uh, educated and, and to have sort of noble tastes, let's say. Um, yeah. The, the, the question is, yeah, if the question is how do we get that back into the culture? Uh, who, who knows? I mean, I'm going to make a case for this in my, you know, writing uh, with, you know, on Nietzsche and, and the other stuff that I'm doing. Um, but I don't know what the, what the trajectory is going to look like. It's a, it's an open question as far as I'm concerned. Right. I saw your new post. I'm pretty excited for it. Uh, you lay out some of these ideas that I've had some skepticism of, sure. like John Verveke's ideas. Um, maybe this is also because I've kind of not delved too deep into them. I only, I, I'm like fully admitting that I only have a surface level understanding of them and that that kind of surface level understanding has not, has not encouraged me to go further. Right. Um, yeah, I'm happy to address any skepticism you have. Yeah. But I, I just like to know more about the case where you're drawing, uh, for example, drawing the connection between the will to power to these ideas, right? I know you haven't fully finished uh, writing on those, right. but yeah, just, just a kind of quick summary. Um, how do you see the, the kind of like evolutionary psychology or the kind of modern scientific parallels to the will to power? Right. So the argument that I'm making, it's necessarily going to be one where you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit, because of course, Nietzsche is not using modern scientific terminology. Uh, but what I'm going to argue is that the pattern that Nietzsche was noticing is the same as this process uh, of complexification. So there was a, a paper published, I talked about it in my intimations essay uh, in 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they argue, and this is this is not just this paper, it's sort of the culmination of many other uh, findings. You know, they're arguing that there is a general process by which the world becomes more complex. And this process involves, so the, the problem here is that the laws of physics, as we know them, the laws of nature, however you want to put it, they are pretty simple. They're pretty deterministic. Uh, quantum physics isn't deterministic, but we have no clue what's going on there. So, But the laws of nature are pretty simple. You can write them all, all down on a single sheet of paper, and yet we look around and we see this massive complexity, and uh, the world is interesting, right? So where does that complexity come from? Um, so I guess I'll, I, I might want to go through a little bit of the intellectual history here just to uh, co- so, oh, sure. Go as deep as you want. <laughs> sure. So uh, there was a physicist named Per Bach who was concerned with this issue in the 90s. And he wrote a nice book. So he did a bunch of research, late 80s, 90s. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it was called The Science of Self, or no, How Nature Works, The Science of Self-Organized Criticality. What Bach argued was that complexity has to emerge at the border between order and chaos. Why? Well, a, a crystal is like an ordered system and a crystal is not complex because if you know what one part of the system looks like, you know what the whole system looks like, right? It's, it's uniform. On the other side of the continuum is a gas. A gas is, of course, not uniform or it's not orderly like a crystal, but it's not complex again because it's uniform. Um, it looks the same everywhere. So 
complexity emerges at the narrow window between too much order and too much chaos. The question is, how is it that systems in nature get to that window without any tuning from an outside agent, right? Because we can come in and we can tune a system by changing the temperature or whatever uh, to to put a system at, at a critical point. But in nature, there is no agent doing that. So how does that occur? And this was the origin of the term self-organized criticality, right? So uh, Bach uh, put forward some models. The mo- like the most famous one is this is called the Sandpile model, uh, but basically showing that systems can self-organize from the bottom up through the interactions of the parts of the system uh, to this narrow window, this narrow window between order and chaos, and at that window they become more complex. Okay, so that idea did not uh, fully explain the emergence of complexity. There are some problems. So uh, self-organized criticality. For reasons I won't go into, it produces fractal patterns, right? So it produces um, uh, a pattern that looks the same at every level of analysis, but of course the world doesn't. So we have to understand hierarchical complexity, uh, how different patterns emerge at different levels of analysis. Uh, So this is where this 2018 paper comes in, uh, this 2018 paper that was published in PNAS, because what they said was, okay, so complexity is basically complexity emerges at the border between order and chaos, but self-organized criticality cannot explain the kind of complexity we see because it it doesn't explain hierarchical complexity. And so they argued that there's another ingredient that you need. Um, you need competing interactions. You need uh, competing interactions between, for example, the long-range uh, the long range forces in a molecule. So like gravity would be one and the short range forces, right? So that's a very simple competing interactions, but they say this is the same, um, uh, dynamic that's going on when you have competing interactions between in biology, the interests of a parasite and the interests of the host. You have competing interactions between individuals within a group and the interest of the group at large, right? So it's these competing interactions, that lead to tension, right? They create, that creates tension. That tension is what leads to self-organized criticality, which involves this, uh, this avalanche event, uh, the descent into chaos, the increase in entropy, however you want to put it, uh, like a, a catastrophe, basically, although it, it doesn't have to be a major catastrophe, uh, major catastrophe, but, um, and then from there you get from that descent into chaos, you get a reemergence into a higher level of integration, uh, a more integrative system, which is a, an increase in complexity. Okay, so now I have to make the transition from that idea. And I realize this is probably not going to be. So uh, I have a few places where I talk about this in my writing. I have a couple essays relating uh, self-organized criticality to John Verveke's idea of relevance realization. And I argue this lines up with what Jordan Peterson was doing in Maps of Meaning. But okay, so I'll talk about relevance realization real quick, because this will get us to the will to power. Um, So John's kind of academic shtick, uh, the, his sort of claim to fame in terms of his academic work is his idea of relevance realization, uh, talking about John Verveke. Uh, relevance realization is just the recognition that there is a family of problems within cognitive science. This includes things like the frame problem, uh, problems in terms of, of uh, communication. Um, I, th- I think he lists like five. I'm not going to remember them all off the top of my head. But this family of problems all boils down to really one basic problem, which is how is it that we, given the massive complexity of the world around us, how is it that we uh, sift through the noise and find the signal? How is it that we uh, determine out of that that complexity which aspects of the world are relevant and which are irrelevant? And John argues uh, that, of course, relevance cannot be a stable set because what is relevant, you know, is, is... 
what is relevant is, is highly context dependent. Uh, we have to understand relevance in terms of a process. This process is relevance realization. And what, so how does John describe that process? Well, he talks about it in terms of what is the word? Uh, not competing interactions, opponent processing. He talks about it in terms of an, an opponent processing relationship, which is a common uh, a common mechanism in biology. So, for example, we have uh, an opponent processing relationship between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, the parasympathetic nervous system calms us down. The sympathetic nervous system hypes us up. Maybe it's the other way around. I, I don't remember. But whatever. And then, and then also like between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain, uh, between our muscle structures. Uh, so we have uh, muscles that flex, mu muscles that um, do the opposite of flex. Uh, and and uh, so we have these opponent processing relationships throughout biology. Very common. And uh, uh, John argues that there is an opponent processing relationship at the bottom of our cognition that allows us to, so, and it's the, it's the opponent processing relationship between the pursuit of efficiency and the pursuit of resiliency. Mm -hmm. uh, won't go into too much detail on that, but what I, what I've argued and John agrees is that efficiency is what you need during periods of order and stability. Resiliency is what you need during periods of upheaval. Uh, and John has argued that the mechanism by which this occurs in the brain is self-organized criticality, meaning this process occurs at the border between order and chaos. It, it involves these uh, these avalanches, uh, these uh, sort of increases in entropy in the brain, and uh, it involves these opponent processing relationships, with it, which is a competing interaction. And so we see a really nice uh, we see a really nice overlay overlap between the process that's described by physicists. That is that underlies the emergence of all complexity in nature, right? Competing interactions leading to self-organized criticality, leading to a higher level of integration uh, and relevance realization, because relevance realization also involves competing interactions leading to self-organized criticality, leading to a higher level of integration. And that was done totally independently. So relevance realization is a manifestation of this process, uh, this general process. That's what I argue. Now, what does it have to do with the will to power? Now, this is a complicated argument, uh, and it's the next part in my series, so it'll be out maybe in a couple weeks uh, in writing. We have um, we have a variety of evolved motivations, right? So Nietzsche's psychology is very similar in many ways to uh, the psychology put forward by modern evolutionary psychologists. Nietzsche says that we have a, a variety of drives. And John Richardson, uh, who is a Nietzsche scholar, has argued that that for Nietzsche, these drives are are formed because of problems that occurred in the past in our lineage in the past. Right. So these drives are, are there to um, uh, they, they function to solve recurring problems uh, for our lineage. Well, this is basically how evolutionary psychologists describe psychological adaptations. Right. So psychological adaptations are. Uh, solutions. So they're, they're like psychological solutions to recurring problems that, that faced our ancestors. And we have many of them. Uh, and for Nietzsche, we have many drives, right? And these drives compete with each other. But for what, what Nietzsche argues, and this is where the will to power becomes kind of psychological, uh, what each drive is after is not just, so we have a, a drive to eat, right? But what we really want is not just to get food, right? We actually want to get better at getting food. 
right? We want to we want to exert more control over the world so that we always have access to food, right? We don't want to just have sex one time, right? We want to get better at, at you know not only having sex but being able to to ha- you know attract somebody, right? Uh, we want to increase our our capacity to uh, to to what satisfy the drives, right? Or the drives actually want to. I mean that's they really are kind of their own personalities in some sense. Um, and so these drives are within us and they compete, right? They compete and we know they compete because, you know, this is why, for example, people lock their fridge at night when they're on a diet, right? Um, you know, you have one, you have one drive within you that is saying hungry, go eat at 2 AM. You have the other drive that's saying, no, I want to be, I want to be thin. I want to be healthy and all this, right? And those things are in competition. Uh, so these drives compete and that causes tension, right? It causes tension. It causes internal conflict. And there are a variety of strategies that we can use to bring to to what to uh, to satisfy our drives, let's say. So one strategy that we can use is we can try to suppress certain drives. Uh, we can say, you know what, our, our sexuality, for example, is too out of control. Right. We've got to just we've got to just do away with that. Right. So we're going to cut it off and focus on the other stuff. Right. That's one strategy you can use. Um, another strategy is to just allow, you know, just be impulsive, right? So I'm just going to do what I want whenever I want and all that. I'm just going to be impulsive, right? Uh, for Nietzsche, the optimal strategy was what he called sublimation, right? We want to sublimate our drives in the service of a higher project, uh, in the service of a great, so we're not suppressing them, right? We're putting them all in the service, uh, of a higher project. And, and so this is, and, but for Nietzsche, this involves the pattern by which this occurs, uh, is the same as the pattern that I, that I described earlier, right? So you have these tension between the drives. Uh, they, uh, eventually you have a, a moment of what, uh, a descent into chaos, let's say a, a period of destruction. Uh, Nietzsche describes this in terms of destructive creation. And then you have a reemergence into a, a, a higher form of order, uh, uh, I would say more complex, right? And Nietzsche said, in one point, at one point, Nietzsche said, uh, the wisest person is the person who has the greatest diversity of drives and viewpoints that are nevertheless integrated uh, in the service of a, a, a single project. I think he described it in terms of harmony. So that's that's one manifestation of that process of complexification in Nietzsche. But there's also uh, the the tension that is caused between uh, slave morality and master morality, for example. And so we have uh, master morality, which, which inculcates in us certain intuitions, certain drives and all this slave morality comes along and is in opposition to that. We have tension. We have a period of, of chaos. Uh, we have a reemergence into a new mode, but we're in one of those periods. I mean, Nietzsche would argue we're in one of those periods of chaos right now, right? Where slave morality has come to its logical conclusion. It's eating its own tail basically. Um, and there's ten, you know, the, all that tension that has been building for thousands of years, right? Okay, well now we're we're coming to a head with it, right? Uh, between the contradictions that are inherent to slave morality and all that, we're in that period of chaos now. And the question is whether or not we're going to reemerge into a more complex mode of being. Okay, so my argument is that we see this same pattern, right? The the tension causing the descent into chaos, causing the reemergence into a higher mode of being. We see it in our scientific theories of how complexity emerges. We see it in our psychological theories of how we develop over time. And then I, I think we see it in Nietzsche's work in terms of also how we develop over time and how culture develops over time. Uh, that's kind of the basic idea of the connection between those things. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense on a kind of 
theoretical level. Sure. Right. It, it makes sense as, you know, like these are the component parts. Like there, there's nothing there that I would say like strongly contest. Okay. Right. But I think like a good way to do this is like just to give kind of specific interactions, give the kind of like Nietzschean interpretation and then mm-hmm. give the kind of complexity analysis or like Verveke understanding of it. Yeah. So one, one is just like, um, one is just like, you know, working for a boss, right. You know, like if you, if you work for a boss, you know, there's probably, this is like the topic of every, uh, every Dilbert comic. Well, well, not quite every Dilbert comic, but let's say most of them. Um, and yeah, you're working for a boss. The boss kind of gives you some kind of order. You do your best to, um, you know, you, you do your best to fulfill the order, but maybe, in the exchange, there's some kind of resentment there. Or there's some kind of like conflict there, right? Like, well, like what, what's the interpretation of that? Oh, I mean, uh, I don't know if there is one in the context of, of what I'm talking about here. I mean, it's not, it's not clear to me exactly what the connection would be. So, I mean, for the person, right. So for the individual, uh, coming into conflict with your boss is probably going to cause a certain amount of internal conflict. So on the one hand, you need to make money. Uh, you need to, you know, have a career. On the other hand, you want to retain your dignity and all of this. And if you think your boss is mistreating you, you're going to have a certain level of resentment. If you don't uh, act on that resentment, it's going to make you feel weak and pathetic and all of this. So we have internal conflict there. And, uh, you know, the idea would be that there are a few ways you can deal with this. You can suppress one of those, you know, one of those drives. Uh, and that would be like a pathology of order, right? So the idea here is that it, with this process, it emerges at the border between order and chaos, and you have different kinds of pathologies associated with whether or not you kind of lean too far towards order or lean too far towards chaos, right? Um, and so if you suppress one of those drives, what you're doing is you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to maintain order at all costs. I'm going to tyrannize the rest of myself. I'm going to tyrannize part of myself, uh, suppress it, repress it in order to maintain harmony, right? In order to keep my job, most likely. Uh, on the other hand, you could just have a total psychotic break. And that actually does happen when people are having troubles at work. Uh, they have, you know, essentially a, a, a nervous breakdown, a psychotic breakdown. That would be something like a, a pathology of chaos. Um, what the optimal solution looks like, who knows? I mean, you know, you'd probably need more specifics, but I guess that's kind of how I would interpret that, uh, in that situation off the top of my head. Uh, does that? Right. Yeah. I think that, that makes sense. And yeah, I, I think that's a good application or that's a very intuitive application of those ideas, right? Like the, like to, to put it in a way that maybe is kind of like much more practical it's that like you know people's desires are in conflict right that's the core idea and then everything branches off of that and i think you you know like if you've ever met um the only people i've met who's kind of all of their desires kind of line up um probably should be in an asylum you know um yeah like like of course there's going to be kind of internal internal human conflict and i think jumping off of that I mean, yeah, like here is my main question about, especially about the kind of Verveke interpretation mm-hmm. of seeing this as sort of a boundary between chaos and order, right? Or just kind of like adapting to those two modes. Sure. Is that like, what additional, what additional information does that give us? Right. Like, so you have this idea that people's desires are in conflict. Like you might 
the, you know, one part of you wants to do X, one part of you wants to not do X and do Y instead, right? Sure. And then you have this higher idea that's like, you're dealing, there are some situations where there's a lot of order or a lot, and there's some situations where there's a lot of chaos and you're kind of either, you, some of your behaviors are adapted to one of them and some of your behaviors are adapted to the other one. I, I think I get that part and I think that kind of makes sense to me but I'm just not really sure about the payoff. Like what's the payoff there? Yeah. So the payoff, uh, I mean, in terms of practical advice, like it's hard to say, right? Because every situation is in some sense unique, but in terms of an overall worldview, in terms of an overall kind of heuristic you can use to interpret the world, uh, I think it's incredible. I mean, for me, it's been very useful because this pattern is not just psychological, right? It plays out at every level of analysis. And that is the, that is the claim being made, for example, in the physics paper that I talked about earlier, uh, is that this, this pattern plays out at all levels of analysis um, throughout nature. So, for example, um, Athena Actippus wrote a book about cancer. Now, this is a, a random example. She wrote a book about cancer, uh, had nothing to do with self-organized criticality, had nothing to do with the literature on self-organized criticality. And this is how she talked about the, the dynamic within the body uh, that, that, that keeps you from getting cancer on the one hand or keeps you from killing off too many cells on the one hand, right? So we have, uh, we have a process, you know, we have apoptosis, which is the process by which cells die. Uh, we, we basically uh, have our cells commit suicide. And we need cells to die off at some point, uh, many of our cells to die off in order to keep them, uh, in order to keep the overall body healthy, in order to keep us from getting cancer. Uh, but on the other hand, but you can have a situation where you have too much apoptosis and you're killing cells that don't need to actually die. And then on the other hand, you have a situation where you, um, uh, where you're not killing off enough cells and eventually you end up getting a mutation in one and you get cancer. And she talks about this as the balance between order and chaos, right? That is like exactly how she talks about it. Um, another example is from Michael Tomasello. He is a uh, cult, he's a, an, an evolutionary developmental psychologist. He wrote this book in 1999 called uh, "The Cultural Origins of Human Cognition," and it was mostly about cultural evolution. And he argues that a, a dynamic like this plays out within cultural evolution. So, in order for cultural evolution to work, um, we need this instinct to imitate, right? We imitate the people around us. We conform. We do what, what our ancestors did. We do what the people around us do, right? We need that instinct. Uh, we need that imitative instinct. But on the other hand, uh, we have to, we have to innovate as well. We have to tinker as well. Um, but there are, there are real problems that come around if we tinker too much. Uh, just one example of this, um, an example that's used quite a bit in the literature is, uh, these water temples in Bali that were used to uh, to direct uh, water flow, uh, they were like they were used for irrigation basically, and they had a whole system where they had a mythology and a, and a bunch of rituals around it, and um, and they had this sort of this sort of system by which they directed water. And in the seventies, um, the government came along basically and said, you know what, this is really dumb. And we're going to implement a more scientific way to do things. And then, and they changed it. They implemented a green scientific way of doing irrigation. And within the next few years, the crops were infested by pests. Uh, you had some people who were abusing the system and so on. Within 10 years, they were back to doing it the old way. All right. So we have traditions that work and we don't really know why or how they work. Uh, and if we tinker with them too much, too fast, they can break. 
But on the other hand, we have to do a little bit of tinkering because the world is changing around us. And so there is this dynamic, right? There is this dynamic between imitation, order, stability, and all this, and then the sort of progressive impulse to tinker and change things. And so my argument is that this this heuristic of being at the border between order and chaos, it, it applies to, to basically everything. Even, uh, you know, there, there are um, papers about the flow state, right? The flow state in, uh, so when you're engaged in something, uh, where you lose track of time, you're being extremely productive, and uh, you're kind of having this this flow of insights uh, that emerges when you're you're not doing something that's too familiar to you because you're bored if you do that, and you're not doing something that's too novel because it's overwhelming and you're just anxious if you do that. Right? It emerges at the the sort of border between boredom and anxiety, between order and chaos. Right? So again, right. we just we see this pattern play out at, at many different levels of analysis. I would argue all levels of analysis, and and that's what makes it useful. I think. Okay. Yeah, like on one hand, nothing nothing you said there seems false to me. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm kind of like. There's both a kind of like no free lunch instinct that I'm mm. getting where I'm I'm sort of skeptical like you talk about these parallels in in that kind of fundamental sense of kind of like order versus chaos sure. across different areas. Yeah. Right? And like I I think that like the principle that there are trade off or that there are like things on the border of order of chaos or order and chaos uh, in many different fields is correct. But I'm not sure if the kind of like outtakes that you can get from one field in terms of order versus chaos in that field actually translates all that well. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, just in my kind of personal experience, I'm not sure if, you know, looking at like limit cases in like theoretical math proofs translates all that well to kind of the structures of political coalitions, even though I see those both as kind of like strong patterns of order versus chaos that I sure. thought a lot about, right? Like I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how useful like looking at the overlap or trying to draw connections between those two actually are, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes that's sense. probably been my main resistance to these kind of like grand unifying theories. Sure. Well, so I and I totally get that, uh, and I don't think so. We're never going to do away like this is not going to solve uh, all the particular problems that are facing us or anything like that, right? I have no you know illusions about that. Um, what it does, I think, uh, what I hope it does, anyways, is provide some common ground and. Uh, provide a framework um, that that is generalizable enough uh, that you can. So most of the most of the situations that we come across, well, I, it depends on what your what your sort of lifestyle is, right? So um, for many people, mm -hmm. right, they do the same thing day in and day out, and, and that's that's all well and good, and that works. Uh, but if you're dealing with an extremely novel situation, right, you need heuristics, uh, you need generalizable models of the world that can be applied, even though they're generic, and even though they're generic, they apply to many different situations. And then you have to figure out, well, you know, how does this particular situation line up with the with the general idea? 
so it doesn't solve every every problem, but it does provide you, I think, with a, a sort of basic uh, low resolution model of the world, right? And and you kind of need that, right? If you're going to be dealing with novelty, if you're going to be uh, dealing with uh, uh, unexpected situations, you need a low resolution understanding of the world that you can that is functional and that can apply to many different things. Uh, and this one has the benefit, to my mind. Uh, so the idea that I put forward, kind of in in my intimations of a new worldview essay, has the benefit of lining up nicely with what I, I argue, what are clearly mainstream scientific theories. So these are, you know, like right. the paper I just talked about was published in PNAS, which is a very, uh, very prestigious journal. And, and a lot of this stuff is published in prestigious journals that I, that I talk about. So these are not fringe scientific theories. So it, it lines up nicely with our best scientific theories. And uh, I argue it lines up very nicely with many aspects of our ancient traditions. Um, and, and this is kind of where Jordan Peterson's work comes in, because in Maps of Meaning, again, totally independently of the self-organized criticality literature and independently of John Verveke's work, um, in Maps of Meaning, Jordan argues that the hero mythology, uh, like the, the meta mythology, the generalized hero myth, involves this descent into chaos, right, and reemergence into a higher level of order, and it occurs at right. the border between order and chaos, right? So I'm looking at all of this and I'm like, okay, is that a coincidence? Um, seems pretty unlikely to me. In fact, and I, I think there's something important there that our traditions have, have picked up on, that our scientific theories are picking up on, um, that, that can provide a, a, a framework within which we can understand the world in a general way that is both functional and meaningful. At least that's what I hope. Yeah, I think actually that, that explanation is actually quite convincing. Viewing that as kind of like the first level of, of your search, right? Like the first, the one, or like one of the first questions you ask yourself, you know, like you're, you're, you're going into a new field, something you have very little experience in. And then like one of the first questions you ask yourself is like, oh, where is the order in this field? Where is the chaos in this field? And where's right. the border? Like that doesn't seem like a bad question to ask yourself at the very beginning. So yeah, I'm kind of convinced of that. I think, yeah, my, my suspicion of it is pretty related to, I think, just my suspicion of, I, I'm not sure how much experience you have with the kind of um, deep right, the kind of political theory right. You mm-hmm. know, I, I see, especially in that space, but also in politics more generally, I think, uh, a desire to make things like much more correlated than they actually are to kind of draw things. For example, like to kind of like draw parallels between like the culture war and like the war in Ukraine much sure. more than actually exist. Sure. Right. To, to just like see things that aren't there. Um, and, and like as a kind of like, there's this kind of like, and I'm not saying that you specifically are doing this. I'm just saying it's a trick that kind of exists out there, you know, where people will say like, here's this abstract idea and here are like two applications of it. And so you should be taking the exact same approach to like both of these applications mm. and like those kind of bridges or like really like those, this is kind of like a lowercase c conservative view, right? Like the skepticism of ideology. Yeah. Um, those to me seem like, you know, in practice, usually leading to a pretty dangerous place. No, not in terms of like literally causing, you know, like war, although certainly that's happened in history, right? Certainly there have been ideologies that have caused wars. Um, but, 
you know, like more practically leading to like what Peterson is leading to, right? Like that's the kind of consequence of, I think, viewing things as overcorrelated. But I think like the, the approach that you have to it, where it's like, okay, you, you, ha- you have to have heuristics, you have to have, you know, some kind of framework for dealing with things, at least at the very beginning. Uh, yeah, I think that's the kind of like healthy version of it, where, where it makes a lot of sense to me. So, so I think, yeah, you, you've changed my mind on John Verveke. Okay, cool. Yeah, good to know. Yeah. Uh, so like somewhat related, but not completely uh, related question is like the idea of evolutionary mismatch, right? You have evolutionary mismatch as a pretty common theme, basically relating to these ideas mm-hmm. of kind of instincts and drives uh, that we kind of are adapted to a world that no longer exists, yes. right? Uh, that we have um, kind of adaptations. For the most common example is, you know, for a world where sugar is scarce, you actually should be absolutely eating, you know, all of the sugar that you can get your hands on. Right. But in the in the current world, that leads to all sorts of medical conditions, right? So, so, so we have all these results in the in the kind of these kind of like main, really like mainstream academic results about evolutionary mismatch, including height that we already talked about with regards to social media. And this seems to be, I think, one of the most powerful kind of, I don't, I'm not sure if I would say right wing, but sort of like traditionalist motivations that people have, at, at least at a sort of kind of like, second tier elite level you know like the types of people who listen to this podcast sure right Right. like that seems to be a very powerful idea and i want to ask you if you think that particularly like evolutionary mismatch in the kind of like the the kind of forces that people are, are are forced to kind of um deal with in their everyday lives right whether it's food whether it's um social media whether it's all these temptations yeah, whether those are going to force a kind of unbelievability or force a kind of change in morals over time. Uh, yes, I think that is the case. I think that understanding evolutionary mismatch is extremely important for understanding the modern world and what's going on uh, with uh, you know things like social media, uh, but also our political situation as well, right? Because right, um, my my argument. I'm I'm writing about this at the moment. It'll be on my Substack soon is that morality or, or at least the way that we've we've thought about morality uh the way that we can, we still think about morality is um is a mismatch right it, it, our our moral intuitions our moral uh psychology evolved in the context of massive intergroup competition it evolved to wage war and that's what it's for um and we're very good at demonizing the outgroup and and construing all of ourselves as as perfect angels and ignoring evidence uh, that that might hurt our in group and and seeking out evidence to hurt the out group right we 're very good at doing that and at this point um it 's you know and that serves us well in the context of warfare clearly uh, but in the context of trying to solve problem you know solve problems around existential threats for example right uh, whether it 's you know nuclear war or, you know the potential threat of AI which I have no clue what to think about but uh, and and stuff like that, right? I mean, all of that's just totally toxic, uh, and it's and I do think it is a mismatch. Um, 
And so, and we've also got cultural mismatches, right? And and this is basically Nietzsche's argument about slave morality. In some sense, it's it's an argument that it emerged at a particular time and place for a particular reason, um, and the reasons for which it emerged are no longer relevant to us. I mean, that's one aspect of the argument. Uh, it emerged in in you know, I think I talked about this earlier, right? Like that way of understanding morality emerged in a context where uh, we had you know, slavery and, and women were, uh, treated way worse than they are today. And, um, in a, in a, in a hereditary aristocracy, right? Well, none of those things exist anymore, but we still have those same moral intuitions. So I think there is a mismatch there. Uh, and so, yes, my, my, my overall answer is, uh, yeah, I think it's very important to understand what's going on and, and, uh, how things are going to develop in the future. Right. How exactly how exactly do you frame that kind of mismatch, right? Because I think a lot of people would say something like, "Okay, like if if you know if something disagrees with our morals, then it's just immoral, right?" Like that's yeah. that's maybe what people would say. Um, so, like, what exactly do you mean by like evolved morality as a kind of mismatch? Okay, so uh, it's a little bit of a complicated argument, um, but so we have evolved, uh, I argue, but I'm I'm stealing this idea from Michael Tomasello, and also there was a 2018 paper by Kyle Stanford in Behavioral and Brain Sciences where he made a very similar case. We have evolved to perceive morality as objective. Uh, we have evolved to perceive our moral norms. As, as if they are objective aspects of an external reality. So what do I mean by that? If somebody comes in and says, you know what? I think Hitler was really good. Somebody's going to take this out of context. I know it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that in the intro. <laughs> right. Yeah. Definitely. So if somebody comes in and says, you know what? I think Hitler was on, on the side of the angels. He was doing God's work. Okay. Are we going to, we're not going to just say, we're not just going to say like, oh, you're, you're wrong, right? We're going to look at this person as if they've just said that the sky is green. Right. We're going to look at this person as if they have just said something that contradicts an obvious reality. Right. To us, it's obvious. Hitler was evil. Right. Um, and so we, we treat morality as if it is the same thing as, as saying that the sky is blue. Right. That's how we treat it. And that's that's really functional in the context of group life in the ancient world, because morality only really functions uh, properly if everybody's basically on the same page. And. It's also the case that if you grow up in a context where everybody is on the same page, look, the way that we determine whether something is objective or not, or, or kind of a part of reality, is if other people agree, agree with it, right? So like, for example, if Joe the caveman sees an antelope, but his buddies who are right there don't see the antelope, right? Well, then we say, okay, well, Joe probably just saw some rustling in the grass. But if all of it, if everybody sees it, then we say, okay, it's very likely that that's real. Right. Well, if everybody in your group agrees, uh, you know, eating chicken is is wrong or whatever. Or if you're in India, like eating cows are wrong right? or whatever. Um, if everybody in your group agrees about a moral norm, it's going to appear to you as if that's like the, an obvious objective reality. And that is how moral norms tend to appear to it. There's there's research indicating that people do see ethical norms as 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 objective as, as facts about the world. Oftentimes um, that, though, is. um uh, a mistake, right? So moral norms are not built into the, the, the structure of reality. If, uh, I mean, it would be really weird if they were given the, given the existence of massively conflicting moral norms between cultures, right? They can't all be objectively true. 
so that understanding of morality, which is extremely intuitive to us, it comes naturally. Um, I argue that it's it's mismatched to our current world, and that it, that uh, that understanding of morality is is toxic because uh, for you know if you're a, a progressive Democrat or whatever. Um, you know, and somebody says, hey, you know, I think Trump is doing a great job, right? Well, it's as if this person has said that the sky is green. You look at them aghast, like, oh, my God. Uh, and the same thing is true to a large extent for Republicans with Democrats, right? Um, we just can't understand sure. how anybody. I know many such people. <laughs> right, right, right. We just can't understand how anybody could believe that, right? Um, or that's how people act anyways. And so, and so, yeah, that, that's what I mean when I say there's a mismatch, uh, our evolved psychology is it makes us or it, it at least uh, compels us to construe morality as if it's an objective aspect of the external world that makes us very hostile or at least it it um it facilitates hostility towards people who don't share our moral assumptions and that was really functional in the ancient world but probably not so much today right but but let's let's kind of steel man that case right like if you're someone who believes a good example of this is abortion, right? If you're someone who believes that, you know, like every single abortion is a murder, then you actually should be, you know, like this actually is something that is worth kind of like grabbing the reins of government and, and like just, you know, yeah. doing an all out war against your political enemies about. And if you're someone who believes, you know, like this is a banning abortion is tyranny, then it's the same deal, right? You, you, you do think that this is genuinely something that you should be kind of fighting for over like the fighting for over the control of power. And of course, you know, like maybe the practical result of that is not great from kind of our perspective. Right. Sure. But like fr from their perspective, right. Is it, isn't that actually the logical conclusion? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, from, from their perspective, right. So if you're somebody, if you, if you believe abortion is murder, right. Well, obviously we've got to stop people from having abortions. And I'm totally like, I get that. Um, and I, I empathize with it. Uh, but, and of course this is, you know, but this is why, I mean, for, for Nietzsche and I would argue just in general, and I, I hold the same opinion, this is not, uh, there's no illusions that this is going to become like the common necessarily, necessarily the common understanding of morality. Uh, because it probably takes a particular kind of person, somebody who is very, uh, introverted, very disconnected from social life, who is, uh, you know, as Nietzsche put it, solitary, um, to even very autistic. I actually don't think autistic necessarily. Um, <laughs> I think the other side of the spectrum actually is probably hmm, more likely, uh, the schizoids. Uh, and I think Nietzsche, <laughs> right? uh, and I, you know, and sorry, I, God, you're good. But yeah, see, with autism, I mean, it's interesting. There, there's a weird thing going on with the autism. So this is my area of scientific research. I, I study the diametric model of autism and psychosis. Um, I don't know exactly what to think about autism in relation to this. We see like a lot of moralism associated with autism. Uh, they tend to punish people more harshly for moral transgressions, and uh, they tend to be a little bit more uh, like concerned with rule breaking and things. Um, and then on the schizoid side, there's very little research, but on the schizoid side, right, they're so weird. And so, uh, and I think Nietzsche was a schizoid, right? Um, you know, they're so like disconnected from social life, but it's in a different way than people with autism are because people with autism, uh, they tend to be motivated to socialize, but they're not very good at it. 
necessarily. And then people on the schizoid side, there's just no motivation at all, right? They're like totally fine being alone all the time. And, you know, uh, but anyways, I, I don't know exactly what's going on there. Uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, it's probably not the case that everybody's going to come to that understanding of morality, but maybe if enough people do, we can kind of, uh, cultivate an aristocracy. I mean, that was really what Nietzsche wanted to do was to cultivate an aristocracy that was beyond good and evil, right? That's kind of how he talked about it as the solution. Right, yeah. Yeah. Although... This is something that I kind of like to do. I kind of like writing uh, apologias, not necessarily in the sense of like, in the, in the Christian sense, but in the sense of like, here is a compelling narrative to people who are kind of inside a bubble, right? Or, yeah. or in their case, a kind of like, you know, a kind of like coherent worldview, a worldview that actually, you know, establishes its principles and is actually consistent. And saying like, let's take those principles and let's let's try to kind of, find either some contradictions or try to work our way out of them. Um, where I think there is a lot, like there, there's one way where we say, you know, there's kind of like John, the Jonathan Haidt version where we say like, yeah, a lot of people are becoming extremists because of social media, because they have access to kind of uh, homogenous communities yeah. uh, in terms of like ideology where it's, it's all kind of incentives. Um and there's the more kind of the, there's the kind of argument that takes people more at, more for their word, right? When they say you know like I believe things for X Y Z reasons, yeah. Um, you know, you 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 think that you like assume that they actually believe it, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. you know, like I, I do think Jonathan Haidt's work on kind of moral foundations and on kind of underlying. Um, psychological drives, I, I don't think there's any kind of like, you know, methodological or kind of like scientific flaw with that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if, you know, using that approach, well, I think like maybe like if you genuinely have control over social media, let's say you're like Elon Musk, right? Sure. Like maybe you should read more Jonathan Haidt. But if you're just like, you know, if, if you're me, right? If you're like a podcaster who's adjacent to all of these circles with different with vastly different disagreements yeah i think that like the approach where you kind of start by taking things seriously and see where you can go from there like like i want to be able to write you know like the evolutionary or like yeah like the kind of pre-exist like someone who already believes strongly in their kind of enclosed self consistent enclosed ideological yeah, worldview. Yeah. Like, like what's the way out for them, right? Like what's the kind of way to say like, okay, here's, here's how you might see evolutionary mismatch. And here's why this kind of, um, this kind of like objective, objective view of morality, uh, might even like, might even make the world much worse for you. Right. Hmm. So, I mean, the question is like, what, how, how do we talk to people who are, who are in a bubble like that? Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, hmm. Yeah. And like, how do we, or like more specifically, you know, like you can always, there, there are like, you can start by just being friends with them by kind of appealing to shared values. But what is a kind of, you know, like, here's the way I think about this, right? There, there's one way, which is, you know, the kind of like political consultant way where you just like lie to them and you just like misrepresent what you actually believe. And I, and like, 
I'm pretty skeptical that like that is a good idea in the long run, right? I, I really, you know, this is not something I would do in practice. Right. More so like, yeah, like how do you talk to people but not, you know, lie about what you actually believe? Okay. It's a very good, good question. I and mean, of course, the answer will probably be, it will probably depend on whether or not you're like things like your job is on the line when you're talking to this right. person. Fair uh, enough, fair enough. So, but, but, you know, so I'm coming from the position of I'm playing the long game here. Okay. I'm, I'm pessimistic in the short term. I'm not trying to change people's minds right now. I'm not trying to uh, enact a political revolution or anything like that. Right. I'm, we're, I'm playing the long game. Okay. Uh, uh, what is going to come next? You know, when all of this inevitably comes to a head, right. Uh, what's, what's going to come next? And are, is it going to be um, uh, better than, than what came before, at least more functional, whatever. So, uh, my my real answer is I don't talk to people like that. Uh, I'm not talking to people like that. I don't I don't have any uh, inclination to. Uh, I you know I right. I just put my stuff out there and whoever wants to read it can. But uh, you know I, I I'm really talking to people who are looking right who are on a journey to find something you know better than what's on what's on offer in our current culture. Uh, so in terms of you know how do we talk to somebody who is totally within uh, within the, the bubble of whatever. I mean, the real answer is I have no idea. I've tried talking to people like that. It's like talking to a brick wall. And I, hmm. you know, there's just no, I, I'm not sure if there is really a way to like rationally get under the surface of, of deeply ingrained beliefs, because we also have to keep in mind, for example, right, that uh, whether it's political beliefs or religious beliefs or whatever the case may be, uh, it's not like this whole person's life may be tied up in this, uh, in their beliefs about these things. So like, you know, just a, a sort of obvious example is if you're somebody who was raised by Christian fundamentalists who are like really, uh, strict about that kind of stuff. Well, if you suddenly in your adulthood, uh, lose your faith, right. You're, you're, you might, you might, your parents might disown you. Uh, your friends might, might be gone. Uh, your dating prospects might be your dating pool might be uh, uh, shrunk quite a bit. So there's real consequences to what people believe. And when you're in that kind of a, and that's always true to some degree, when you're in that kind of a situation, like rational arguments are kind of not that useful, I think. Right. Okay. So I, I put a pin on this maybe okay. an hour, uh, an hour, 15 minutes ago, but I do want to return to this. Sure. Idea that the world has become more egalitarian. And I'm not sure if we actually disagree with this, but I'll talk about what, how I interpreted that statement and why I disagree with it. I, I think like the positive case for that is, you know, just look at the universities, just look at the media, right? This kind of slave morality, this kind of idea that people are only, um, you know, people are only unsuccessful because of oppression or because of basically like external factors is, is more popular. Um, so, so that's like the case for it. Right. But I would say that when I ask myself the question, like, has the world become more egalitarian? Uh, the way I would answer that is, you know, how was differences in ability rewarded? And of course it's not necessarily the same differences in ability that are rewarded, especially compared to like millennia ago, right. Where say physical strength might be more rewarded. But just the degree to which individual differences are rewarded, the degree to which, you know, you can be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, you know, a plethora of, you know, like, 
you know, even if you're just like a like a multimillionaire, right? Who's no one's heard of? You're still a multimillionaire, right? That's still yeah, very, you know, you're still having a very you know prosperous life, a uh, very happy life, very maybe busy life, right? But the degree to which differences in ability are rewarded today, I think, like there's no there's no contest, right? Compared to um, compared to millennia ago, or even compared to centuries ago. And not only that, right, there are actually very clear systematic reasons of how you engage in the world that have resulted in that, right? There's this book, Hierarchy in the Forest, yes. and a very good review by Rob Henderson that I think I'm going to link in the in the show notes, uh, which basically outlines like egalitarian norms in tribal societies. Yes. Or, yeah, or in like hunter-gatherer societies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the egalitarian norms in hunter-gatherer societies is that, those who were abundantly successful in terms of resources or in terms of mating, people would just kill them, right? Like the egalitarian mechanism was just violent crime. And, you know, like the degree to which we have taxes or which we have, you know, like affirmative action or whatever, I don't necessarily support those things. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's much better than just being randomly murdered. (laughs) True. So, so that's the case that, you know, like the world is actually much more inegalitarian, and that those things, like like that rule of laws, for example, is kind of in, like there, there's this quote. Uh, I don't remember if it's from Bology, but it's mentioned in the network state. Whether whether it's from him or he's quoting someone else, but that like freedom and variance are synonyms, right? The ability to do things, and you know, like the the natural inequality that will arise, yeah, are basically the same thing, and that to do to the degree that like technology has given us that and that, you know, our kind of societal arrangements of kind of rule of law uh, and freedom of association to the degree that it still exists, which, you know, compared to the past is still much greater um, or at least compared to the distant part past is still much greater. Yeah. That is a kind of much more inegalitarian world than before. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you and I are thinking about different things in terms of egalitarianism. So all I'm referring to is just the fact that, look, we're the first civilization that doesn't have slavery as an institution. We, we don't have a hereditary aristocracy. Um, and the lifestyles, the lifestyle differences between the rich and the poor, I think, are much closer, even though the wealth, the total wealth difference might be greater in some, in some sense. Uh, the lifestyle differences in terms of our poor people aren't starving to death. In fact, they're obese, right? So, right. Uh, so the, the, that's what I that's what I'm referring to. Um, we don't have a class of people who is constantly on the verge of starvation, uh, who have essentially no legal rights, uh, and who are looked at as as not being moral equals by the aristocracy or the nobility or whatever. Um, so that's kind of what I'm referring to in terms of like whether or not we have. So I mean, I, I would call basically what you're referring to a lot of what you're referring to more like meritocracy. Um, right. Yeah. And, and yeah, it could definitely be argued about the extent to which we have a meritocracy compared to the past. I, I don't exactly know what I think about that. Um, it's hard to say, but yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of, I think our, our, what we're thinking of as egalitarianism is a little different. Right. I think like in relation to slave morality though, which, which vision is more compelling? Like, is it more, is it kind of like more, is a stronger kind of aesthetic argument for slave morality that, you know, you have, you have like a king and you have a peasant mm. or that you have, you know, like 
multi-billion dollar Bezos with his like yachts <laughs> and his, you know, private jet and his, um, and his like space travel, right? Like, yeah. are people more strongly motivated by the difference between someone who is, I agree, like suffering much more and someone who is like, you know, quite wealthy, but by our standards, by modern standards, not that wealthy, right? To yeah. like, you're kind of turning up the magnitude on both of them, right? You're turning like, like the life of the poor person is better. Uh, but the life of the rich person is also uh, significantly better. And like, what, what, at the end of the day, like what are the kind of egalitarians motivated by, right? Are they motivated? I'm sure like, you know, especially in the past, there are many who are motivated by just kind of like the practical, you know, lack of food, starvation. Uh, that's certainly a strong motivation. But also you have the kind of, kind of, uh, for lack of better terms, like bourgeois egalitarian today that is more motivated by the kind of aesthetic and by the fact that, you know, like some people are wealthy. Right? Yes. Yeah. <sighs> No, there's a there's a tension here. Uh, I think even like within the whole sort of slave morality framework, um, right? And we're I mean, this is right. really uh, the war that's being waged within our culture, within the universities, especially. Um, you know, whether or not we're going to make sure we have equal outcomes among sexes, racial groups, or whatever, or whether or not we're going to make sure that the process by which people are uh, chosen for positions is equally applied to everybody, right? Um, right. and the, the, what I, you know, the, the religion essentially within the university is a total waging, is a, is waging total war on equality as process, uh, explicitly and explicitly, they call that white supremacy. Uh, they, and, and you can see this in like, uh, Delgado and Stefanchich's book, uh, on critical race theory, their textbook on critical race theory, they argue uh, that uh, they don't like the concept of rights because rights are about the process and rights don't don't make people equal in terms of outcomes, right? They, they say that explicitly in the book, right? And, and uh, right. this is a pretty common attitude. So uh, yeah, there is this tension, right, between in, in our culture, which is these are two different strains in some sense within slave morality. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very much on the side of the equality as process strain, uh, but these really are both strains within slave morality, I think. And um, yeah, I don't know exactly what, what's going to happen there or really not. I really don't even know exactly how to think about it, but I do think that tension uh, in terms of what we think of as equality is important. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you see the, hmm, that, that's interesting. I can kind of see the argument for it. So let me just clarify. So do you see the kind of, uh, equality of process as also being a part of egalitarianism and or slave morality, or do you just see those as different things? Oh, I do. I do see it as being part of slave, like in the tradition that was cultivated by Christian, by the Christian moral ethos. Yes. I see it as being within that tradition. Um, in the sense that uh, there was no, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, the laws of Manu in India or, uh, the, you know, the way that the, the Greeks talked about their aristocracy and slavery and all this, that, that, that idea of equality of process was never there, right? That, that's a, that's a relatively new, uh, phenomena, uh, phenomenon, um, that I do think was, uh, emerged with the idea of, um, uh, individuals having rights and, 
some kind of equality, some kind of moral or legal equality and so on and all of that. Um, Larry Seedentop, anyways, in his book, Inventing the Individual, he, I think, makes a very, uh, very persuasive argument that that kind of that those kinds of ideas emerged out of Christianity. Um, and so they're they're in the tradition of slave morality as well, I, I, I think. Right. Yeah, I, I think that the argument for that makes a lot of sense. Right. The, the problem with. Hmm. Like, I, I think that's that makes sense. But the problem is that the kind of like. So so here's my like steel man of critical race theory. Sure. Right. Yeah. Is that like. You know, like there, there's a very famous Twitter anon who's kind of popularized the the phrase "the woke are more correct than the mainstream." Mm. But like the idea that sort of like a tribal view of things results in more equality of outcomes than a kind of individual rights view of things, which basically gives people the freedom to you know accumulate you know fortunes in the positive direction, yeah. right? that 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 is factually correct right like you might like you might say and and i would say right i I think we both agree that it's less due to oppression and more due to individual differences yeah but like the idea that you achieve or like the idea that rights and equality of outcomes are intention is just true right uh okay the the idea that rights and equalities are what is True. Like that individual rights and kind of equality of outcome. Oh yeah, intention. their intention. Yes, definitely. That's, yeah, like like this is kind of what I mean by it being like an internally consistent ideology, right? Like like it might not be consistent with like reality or with like you know all the statistics that they like to den- deny, but it's like it's like an enclosed thing. It's not like. You know, there are versions, there are kind of like versions of beliefs that I think people kind of mock, you know, like, like a lot of um, kind of naive versions of religious, of like literalist religious beliefs, right? Where they're like, oh, in in this, in this part of the Bible, you know, uh, Jesus said this, and in this other part of the Bible, Jesus said that. And, you know, if you believe all of these things literally happened, then isn't this a contradiction, right? Right. where they just don't take the metaphorical interpretation at all. But, um, yeah, I don't think that's the case with the kind of, um, with the kind of equality of outcomes, those types of ideologies. I think they're kind of internally, you know, they're kind of like philosophically consistent. Yes. They're just, you know, like they just run up against reality. They just run up against observations. But if yes. you, you know, if you close your eyes and you live in a world of pure theory, then, then those ideas can still be, you know, like they can't be disproven by argument alone. You need to be introducing additional data points. Yeah. And if you make it impossible to introduce additional data points, then you just can't overcome that. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, let's be clear, you know, the, the real, the people at the real core of the ideology of the ideology uh, that's ascendant in the universities are not idiots. Uh, these are sophisticated people, well-read, smart, uh, and they're not. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't think that you know we're dealing with dummies here. Uh, they 
they know what they're doing, right? And um, uh, reading their work uh, is interesting. I mean, it's 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 all interesting as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, even the sort of closing their eyes to the realities of things, like that's not stupidity at work there. Like that's a real functional strategy because they they are fully aware. For example, uh, that. For the average person, what the average person cares about in terms of fairness is proportionality, meaning uh, that we want people to get uh, outcomes. Generally speaking, we want outcomes to be proportional to the productivity of the person. Right. We think that if somebody, uh, you know, if you're laying bricks and, and one person laid 800 bricks and the other person laid 200, that the person who laid 800 needs to get more money. Right. That, that's something that comes intuitively to almost everybody. And they are well aware of this. And so they have to deny that there's any difference in productivity between uh, between people, especially especially groups um, in order for their ideology to make sense. So even that, like even the denial of, of certain realities is not stupid. Right. It's, it's a sophisticated strategy as far as I'm concerned. So uh, and, and the ideology is at least internally consistent. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with what you're saying there. Right. Actually, this this gets to an interesting point. So you think that, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to get the psychometrics on this. Yeah. But, you know, have you ever seen the word cell meme? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I discussed this with Steve Shu a bit. But there is some kind of technical basis for the idea, or like scientific basis for the idea that the people in these kind of ideological fields are much higher in verbal ability than they are in kind of mathematical or spatial uh, reasoning ability. And this kind of divide has been very interesting to me, especially as like a a divide between, you know, um, what Michael Gibson calls the paper belt and Silicon Valley, right? Like essentially like Eastern universities and think tanks and journalism uh, as opposed to, you know, like Western technology, um, where I do think, I don't know, I'm not sure how much of a majority this is, but certainly much more prevalent than I think in really anywhere else in American society. But there is an attraction to the kind of Nietzschean Superman or Overman or, you know, whatever the proper translation of that is yeah. um, in, in Silicon Valley, right? There is an attraction to that kind of, either master morality or I don't know if you would call it an integrated morality or I don't even Something know what like they would that. call it. Sure. Right. But um, yeah, you've seen him, Mark Andreessen speak about this publicly, um, Eric Torenberg, a lot of people who are kind of in similar circles yeah. uh, as this podcast speak about this. And I do think there is something there, right? I do think it's, I, I do think it's not just a dream in that like, there are many Silicon Valley CEOs and founders who do genuinely aspire and do genuinely kind of make life decisions in, in that direction, in trying to get more of a master morality. And I think, you know, like certainly there are, there are flops, certainly there are liars, but there are genuine people who have built, you know, genuine businesses that change all of our lives, right? Like, like Tesla, like, um, like Amazon, certainly, uh, like, like that's also, that's, that's a real phenomenon as well. Right. So, so the question I guess is like, do you, do you see, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the kind of Silicon Valley or the kind of business landscape more generally, but do you see that as a kind of 
emergence or a kind of place for more aristocratic values to kind of develop? I, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I, you're right. I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, I'm not familiar that familiar with that culture. Um, you know, I'm really much more uh, in the sort of evolutionary psychology, psychometrics, you know, scientific uh, world. Like that's sort of what what I am familiar with. Um, and I don't uh, I don't really meet or talk to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't meet or talk to a lot of people from that world. So I really don't know uh, anything much about that. Right. This is, yeah, I wanted to ask this since the beginning, but uh, I just never found a place to properly flow into it. But I uh, definitely want to get this before the end. Um, sure. What's Nietzsche's relationship to truth? Like, like, did he believe in a kind of like capital T truth? So uh, in answering this, um, I want to preface this by saying that there's a, you know, there's a large philosophical literature commenting on and interpreting Nietzsche. And uh, there's disagreement about this within that literature. So I'm going to give you what I think is the is the most appropriate response. And everything I say here is like consistent with a mainstream interpretation. So it's not fringe or anything. But my answer to this question is definitely yes. Uh, 100% Nietzsche believes in truth. In fact, he believes in truth so much that he's willing to question the very idea of truth, right? He wants to know the truth about truth, right? That's, you know, he's willing to question uh, the, the very concept of truth because he, he's so uh, he's so after the truth. And there's an early essay by Nietzsche called On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. Uh, I haven't read that essay in a while, so I don't remember much of the details. But in that essay, when, when people talk about truth in relation to Nietzsche, it's normally in, in, in relation to that essay. And I do think he held a lot of these ideas later on in his life. So for Nietzsche... You know, it's it's definitely the case that the way people intuitively and naturally think about truth is not the way Nietzsche thinks about truth. So for Nietzsche, every time we generalize, every time we make uh, we use a concept, and I think the example he uses in that essay is a leaf. So when we talk about a leaf, right, the fact is that all leaves are like totally different from each other. If you go down to the to the very small details, right? They're all totally, they're a totally different arrangement of atoms for each leaf, right? Um, and so we, we falsify the world in some sense when we, when we generalize, we falsify the world, we, we make things equal that aren't actually equal. Um, and this is kind of Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's rejection of a correspondence theory of truth, right? So the correspondence theory of truth is, to put it very simply, there are different versions of it. It's just the idea that, you know, that, uh, our language maps on to the real world in kind of almost like a one-to-one fashion. Um, something like that anyway. But, but Nietzsche clearly has more of, uh, I think it's really a, a kind of unique view on truth in some sense, because it's kind of a pragmatist view in that he thinks that a lot of what we call truths are useful fictions. But in the in the end, he's still calling them fictions, so it's not really a pragmatist view of truth. But um, So I won't go too much into that. But uh, overall, the answer is yes. And I think it's clearly yes that Nietzsche believes in truth. Throughout his, um, throughout his writing, you see him say things like, you know, it, it's, it tells you something about a person. It tells you something about their character to the extent that they can withstand the truth. Because truth is not always beautiful. Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's disgusting. Sometimes it, it violates our moral sentiments. And um, there are some people 
that can withstand the truth better than others. And so that uh, clearly implies that the truth is not whatever you want it to be, right? It's, it's something that exists independently of you uh, and exerts a kind of effect on you or, or something like that. So um, yeah, that's basically my answer. Yes, he, he believes in truth, but a little bit differently than I think most people do. And it's kind of complicated. Right. So yeah, there are some people who kind of blame Nietzsche for for a more kind of, you know, quote unquote, postmodern, but here I mean, yeah. you know, like power oriented yeah. understanding of truth or of kind of civilizational processes. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that that's fair at all? No, and neither do almost any of the modern commenters on Nietzsche. So pretty much everybody who I read, okay. uh, every, pretty much everybody who I read says that the postmodern interpretation was like pretty clearly a cynical misuse of Nietzsche for for their own ends, right? Uh, Nietzsche would have hated somebody like Foucault, right? Um, I mean, I think he really would have despised him uh, for his whole, I mean, you know, Foucault was, was uh, clearly in the realm of what Nietzsche called the, the preachers of equality and, and people in that postmodern tradition are all kind of in that realm. So uh, I think it's, it's almost a consensus within the literature, at least from what I read, that the postmodernists abused Nietzsche uh, and that he, although although he does have some postmodern views, like his, his view of truth is in some sense kind of postmodern, um, he would not have approved of the way the postmodernists abused him. Right. So I don't know though, like that sounds like there is some kind of relation there, right? That, that, that kind of concept of power, like maybe he did not agree with their kind of ultimate conclusions. Right. But, I mean, like, I don't know, I, I don't know about this, right? So this is kind of purely dependent on on your last answer. But my, my interpretation of, of, of that answer is that there is some kind of link in how uh, they think about structures. And maybe this leads to, you know, completely different conclusions, but that there is some sort of, this isn't to ascribe any of their actions to Nietzsche, of sure, course, sure. or any of their beliefs yeah. to Nietzsche. Yeah. But there is a kind of, um, there is an understanding that, you know, like people can take this sort of view of truth as sort of either developed across time or across, you know, like human societies as basically licensed to, you know, licensed to project whatever they think is true yeah onto as like it's kind of like you know like do you know what like gnosticism is i mean i kind of yeah yeah there's basically like a license people kind of view or use these kind of interpretations as a license to say you know like i have the hidden truth and you know like all all of society has been trying to hide know that this this truth from you and so on and so forth sure. right in, in both the kind of like in both the Foucauldian sense and in the kind of you know like mod, like like online right-wing shit poster yes. sense sure sure um so what's the what's the question here like, like do you do you think that the, there is any kind of relation there right? oh yeah yeah definitely between I mean, those kinds of skepticism maybe yeah yeah i do think so i mean 
uh, it's not like the influence. I mean, it's not like Nietzsche didn't didn't really influence uh, the postmodern movement and influence. And he's clearly influenced right wing movements and, and left wing movements and so on. That's um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, in a way that Nietzsche would have, I think, always basically disapproved of and in and, and a, and a way that he feared. Right. Uh, that he would be abused for. But uh, yeah, not not in a way that. So I think Nietzsche is rarely used for political purposes in a way that Nietzsche would actually like like himself to have been used. Um, definitely, definitely not by the Nazis. Uh, Nietzsche hated anti-Semites. Uh, he, even though he said some things in his work that might be construed as anti-Semitism, uh, he. What we have to understand about that is that when he says that the Jews were the most like uh, uh, their, their their hatred was. Uh, they, they were the greatest haters in the world, right? For Nietzsche, that's not an insult in some sense, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, the way he was used by the Nazis, he was used by Maoists, he's been used by uh, people for all kinds of purposes, um, mostly in ways I think he wouldn't like. Uh, he was at, at bottom kind of, mm, it's hard to say, I mean, exactly, like I, I don't think Nietzsche would have been involved in politics at all today. Uh, and I don't think Nietzsche would have any affinity whatsoever for the Republican or Democratic Party or anything like that. Um, yeah, just, just you know, like the way that they've both evolved, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, that's the danger of being, you know, a famous philosopher. I'm sure in 100 years, you know, people will be making uh, your work uh, into whatever their political football is. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I'll, I'll yeah. take that. <laughs> we'll see if I'm still around or if my stuff is still around in 100 years. I, I doubt it, but thanks. Right. So, so moving to the kind of end part of your article, uh, oh, I'll cut this out, but by the way, I do have a hard cutoff at like 6.30. That's fine. But uh, yeah, M- moving to the end part of, uh, of your new article, uh, the reevaluation of all values part four uh, for the audience. Sure. Um, yeah, Th- this, this section intrigued me the most even though i'm not sure precisely what you mean by it but um part 10 a process morality right so, so like this idea there's kind of like two ways of reading this right like there i think like i mean like i i'm in no sense a nietzsche scholar i've read some of his work but yeah viewing but there's like two two ways to view this right one is as, as a kind of like emergent process mm-hmm in which I think is closer to what Nietzsche believes and certainly the kind of um, Evo psych contingent believes. Right. And the other, which I think is most people's view of a kind of process morality as a kind of more kind of procedural and legalistic sense. Mm. Right. As in like, you know, like we have courts, you know, our morality is that what the, what the courts decide is going to be, you know, what I believe in. And more so, you know, like really what kind of uh, conservatives and libertarians call like the quote unquote administrative state, right? Like the, the idea that we're going to delegate these processes to these right. kind of expert committees, right. but the expert committees are just staffed with partisans. But, you know, as long as the process is being followed, sure. you know, you have to accept it, right? Like th- that kind of idea, um, which I don't think, certainly I don't think is what Nietzsche no. believed, but this i do think there's the kind of like similar sociological pattern that people are kind of getting to where 
with the kind of complexity in the world, people are kind of unsettled by not having a kind of definitive, you know, like this is actually like very in line with what at least I interpret and what I interpret of both Nietzsche and your writing of like people being overwhelmed by the kind of information that they're getting. And in lieu of kind of like a solid, you know, like deontological rules-based morality, they want to like delegate these things off to processes. Hmm. And I guess the big question is like, you know, is this going to lead more to the kind of emergent processes that I think both you and I are supportive of, or like more towards a future where there are more delegations to these bureaucratic, you know, top-down constructed processes? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. So I, I think that what uh, so what I'm arguing for in terms of uh, what was implicit in Nietzsche's writing, and I will say here, you know, I said before that most of what I said, or I think everything I've said up to this point is at least consistent with mainstream interpretations. Uh, I don't I haven't seen this argument in the literature. So this is this is my maybe my original fringe take on Nietzsche, but uh, implicit in Nietzsche's writing. And he, he makes value judgments. And you might even say that he makes moral value judgments in some sense, right? There are people who he really doesn't like, who he has disdain for, <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it's it seems relatively clear that it's not just his opinion or he doesn't think about it as just his mere opinion, just his idiosyncratic opinion. Um, but what has to be understood is that it, he doesn't dislike these people because they adhere to a particular morality. It's because of how they adhere to the morality. Uh, it's it's uh, the way in which they adhere to the morality and that they are 100% certain that they are the good, they are the just, and that anybody who opposes them is evil and must be punished, destroyed, whatever. Um, it's that attitude, right? That self-righteousness that Nietzsche is, is, is what railing against in some sense. Um, and so he, I think, identifies uh, this pattern, right? This eternal pattern in some sense, or at least eternal for human beings, by which morality is updated, because it is the case that in order for a moral system to function, it has to be basically like widely agreed upon, and there has to be people who are who are what who are uh, uh, who are bought into it enough that they're willing to punish the people who deviate. Uh, that has to be there, and yet at the same time. Uh, the world is changing. The world moves around us. And at some point in time, the morality has to change with it. And so we get this this tension between individuals who see what's coming, who see the, the necessary change and the individuals who are uh, who are there to conserve the, the current morality. Right. And so Nietzsche calls these the good and the just. Uh, and for Nietzsche, the overman is somebody, I think, who. It's hard. I mean, Nietzsche is very vague when he talks about the overman, right? So there's a little interpretation that has to go in there. But it seems to me that the overman is kind of this figure who is supposed to uh, come along and kind of be the final piece in this process uh, where instead of just updating the morality, he changes the way that we think about morality in general, going beyond good and evil and so on. Um, but but the reason I call it a process morality is because what Nietzsche is really concerned with uh, is the process by which morality is updated. And that process the process involves this tension between the fact that moral, moral norms have to be widely agreed upon, they have to be enforced, and they also have to change. Uh, and it's that process that's what is what's really important, right? The, the process itself is in some sense, um, well, it's more important than any of the particular moralities that emerge out of the process, if that makes sense. Does that kind of answer your question at all? 
Right. Yeah, I think that... Hmm. Maybe, like, maybe it doesn't. Right? Like, like okay, the, the thing that I think we've been kind of dancing around, which, which I think is, like, a genuinely hard question, right? I don't blame you for having a solid answer, but I want to push for one nonetheless. Go for it. Is like, what what does the path out of this look like? Huh. Right? I'm certain all of the questions I've asked before relate to this. But like, if you were to, to give like one kind of like prototype guess, right? At what the transition from the current kind of slave morality, public slave morality to like a world in which most people believe something like very distinct. Yeah. Um, what would that look like? Uh, chaos, crisis, um, not pretty, not fun. Uh, that's that's my real opinion. I mean, I, I don't think that anything's going to change just in some certain in terms of some gradual, uh, you know, where we're going to start convincing people. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think that the you know what eventually I think has to happen. So I mean, and I think I think you kind of see this again a little bit implicitly in Nietzsche is that Nietzsche at least, and I think this is a plausible argument thought that there was kind of two ways, either two ways this is going to go. Uh, either one, we're going to become last men, right? So we're going to become egalitarian, comfort-seeking herd animals who uh, don't strive to become anything other than what we are, right? Happy, happy little consumers. Uh, and so maybe that's one equilibrium that could occur. And we would not be very happy about that because... Uh, it would be a a sort of snubbing out of of human potential, or on the one or on the other hand, uh, some kind of cultural crisis, uh, some kind of cultural crisis that uh, out of which can emerge uh, a new, well, out of which can emerge Nietzsche would say the Overman, right? I, I don't know uh, exactly about that, but out of which emerges uh, something new and better and different. Um, and I do, you know, my heuristic here is that. Uh, these kinds of changes, uh, the kind of the kind of total worldview change that has to occur, uh, is not going to occur without a little bit of a little bit of pain uh, along the way. So, in terms of specifics, you know, the, I, I just don't have an answer because I don't know. I, I, I can't. I'm not very good at predicting the future. But um, that's that's basically my sense of of what I guess has to happen. Maybe that answer. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's still probably not a very precise answer, but that may be the best I've got. Yeah, no, it's fine. Like that's 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 kind of what I expect, right? I don't think anyone can see. No, I certainly can't see fifty years into the future. Um, sure. That and that might not be long enough, right? You know, we've been here for yeah, 100, 120, 130 years since Nietzsche, and we are um, we're still in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I think maybe that's a good that's a good place to uh, uh, to end things, and we'll give you the last question of the show. And uh, this is maybe a very appropriate last question of the show, but I promise you, you know, you can go back to any of the previous episodes since I think episode three or four. This has been the last the last question okay, of the show. Okay. What is something in the world that is too much chaos and needs more order, and something that's too much order and needs more chaos? Preferably things we've not talked about yet. Oh, man. Uh, too much chaos. Uh, my apartment, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, 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 good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Clean your room. Yeah, really. Right. It's good advice. <laughs> um, too much chaos. Uh, whew, 
I mean, you know, I, I could I could give generic answers. Ukraine, right? Ukraine has too much chaos. We need some order. Um, and, you know, the first answer that comes to mind is just uh, the universities and our entire the, the entire way that we are uh, the entire way that we are like raising kids. You know, in the past, there has been some kind of initiation, right? Some kind of, you know, you're coming into the world as an adult. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the path you take. And now it's just total freedom. And, you know, I think, I think this affects men more than women. Uh, in some sense, women are actually like kind of doing okay, but a lot of men uh, take that freedom and play video games and watch porn basically all day. Right. And it's a huge, you know, it's a, it's a big, so I think there, we need some more order in that realm. Uh, what is something that has too much order and needs chaos? Um, hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I kind of actually have the same answer in some sense, which is the universities, but, um, because, because we need, uh, we need a little bit of a shakeup there in the, in the, you know, the total, uh, the total, what the total stranglehold, uh, that the current ideology has on the university culture, uh, needs a little bit of chaos. Um, yeah, obviously those are things we've talked about, but those are that's what's on my mind at the moment. So those are the those are the answers I've got. Yeah, that's fair. That's understandable. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. It was a great. It was such a thoroughly enjoyable episode. I, I enjoyed talking to you, Brian. Thanks for having me. That was my episode with Brett Anderson. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said at the beginning, the best thing you can do to help the show is to let a friend know. You can also leave a five-star review on any podcast app and leave a comment on the Substack. After all, I'd be very happy to have lesser-known podcast guests such as Brett, who had really one of, I think, the best and most insightful episodes out of everyone who's been on the show, including people who have been more popular. Uh, more people like that to be on the show. And I'm sure that you, my audience, can certainly help with that. And I'd be very happy if you did. And as always, you can subscribe to get another great episode next week. See you then.